0: Hi, and welcome back to this episode of Who Cares? What's the Point? The podcast about the mind for people who think. Now, in this episode, we're looking at the dark emotion of revenge. Now, the saying goes, revenge is sweet, and that revenge is a dish best served cold, and they can be quite revealing. Listen to my conversation with David Chester about his program of research over the past few years, looking at dimensions of revenge and how we relate to this complex emotion. We also touch upon the idea of social pain and loneliness, uh, how one of the worst forms of pain for a human is to be ignored, and how films often depict time slowing down when it portrays violence. Believe me, it's quite an interesting and wide-ranging conversation. Have a listen to myself and David, and make up your own mind. Welcome to the show, David. Um, we usually ask our researchers that we have on here, why did you get interested in this topic of research in the first place?
1: Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I, I've really had to think about this, why I got into you know researching the science of revenge a little bit, because I kind of stumbled into it. I didn't really set out with a clear goal of understanding why people seek revenge. Um, the best I can come up with is that You know, one of the biggest conundrums of my life of trying to understand people is understanding why they hurt each other and trying to understand why someone would risk the incredible costs of hurting another person um, when there's so much better ways to spend your time. And so in trying to understand what we'd call aggressive behavior, which is the attempt to harm someone else against their will, uh, I began to realize that the vast majority of it was retaliatory in nature, which means that. You know, someone perceives that another person slighted them or provoked them and that they're trying to get revenge on that person. So through trying to understand why people hurt each other, I I necessarily became fascinated with uh, understanding revenge.
0: And it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, one of the things that you differentiate in the setup for for your paper and explaining what you did and what you found was the difference between retaliatory aggression and unprovoked aggression, and mm-hmm. the different um, effects that this can this can have, but also the theoretical um, background around that, particularly around. Um, and I think it's linked to acute kind of um, social slights, and then mm-hmm. the temporal relationship as to when that goes on over a long period of time. So perhaps you could right. talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so decomposing revenge into its various you know ingredients has been a fascinating endeavor of mine for the past few years because, you know, we, we understand what revenge is as a culture and we understand that it's a problem, but we really don't know too much about what goes into it and who does it the most. And so I've really tried to pick it apart at the seams, uh, sometimes inventing seams where there aren't any, uh, to try and understand this phenomenon a little bit better. And to do so, I've employed some of the recent advances um, in the field of psychology and neuroscience to, uh, to really try and do this. So, Up until about the past 10 years, uh, you really couldn't look at aggression other than in a laboratory setting or just through surveys. But uh, advances in brain techniques and computer programming um, and brain imaging and MRI and uh, brain stimulation techniques have really given your average aggression researcher a huge toolkit to choose from. Um, I have wielded as my favorite tool uh, the functional MRI, which is a very cool little brain imaging technique that allows us to see what the brain is doing in the middle of an aggressive episode. So it allows us to kind of peer into what the brain is doing while someone is inflicting harm on another person, which we never could do uh, previously. And our, our research has really tried to pick apart what happens when someone is hurting someone else you know, who hasn't provoked them versus what's going on in the brain when someone is getting revenge, when someone is harming someone who they think has harmed them? Um, and I, I can go into a little bit about the, the findings if you'd like.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I guess one of the things is... Um... I was interested in is what are the sorts of mechanisms that um, are possible that may underlie why revenge seem you know, the, the saying is, is that, re, you know, revenge is sweet. Um mm-hmm and it's a, a dish best served cold you right. know and so there's there's almost like um the, 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 there is a reward associated with revenge that's implied mm-hmm. there but also there's a dispassionate stance as well that's kind of implied there as well um and i was wondering um you know what are the possible mechanisms by which revenge can um be rewarding Um, and actually produce positive emotions? You know, what motivates people to to do this?
1: Yeah, that's the question that's been driving me for the past three years. And it's such a very complicated and therefore interesting question. Uh, We started by looking just in the immediate sense. We're looking, okay, right as revenge is happening, what's going on in the brain? How are people feeling? What's driving revenge right after the provocation? Um, so really clicking in the microscope as far as we can. And what we find is is this this kind of folk notion that revenge is sweet is, is, is truly borne out in the data. And so we see that people report that hurting someone who has just pissed them off is a pretty enjoyable experience. Um, and if we put them in the brain scanner and we have them hurt someone... Who has just pissed them off? We see activation in the brain's reward circuits, and that tends to scale with the amount of the revenge. So the more revenge they seek, the the the, the more rewarding they tend to find it. Um, but you know the the picture gets a little bit more complicated and messy when you zoom the microphone back or the, the microscope back out, and you look at it as as, as kind of more of a long term picture. And so when you when you stop seeing the revenge unfold in the immediate sense, and you start to look at revenge as a more delayed phenomenon, you tend to see um, some complicated psychological and neurological processes start to, to come online. So one thing we found is that this, the sweetness of revenge does seem to exist in the moment, but it fades very, very quickly. And so that, that the positive emotion that's experienced when you're getting revenge, it, it dies in, in a matter of minutes and is mm. replaced by a resurgence in negative emotions. So you know if, if, if you're trying to get catharsis The revenge, you've really picked a bad, bad strategy, because not only are you going to feel not better, but you're going to feel worse than when when you started out. And so our research is starting uh, to pinpoint that as well. Mm. Um, And yeah, please go ahead.
0: Yeah, I I guess one of the things that um, I was thinking about in your setup for the paper is um, the growing evidence that anticipated emotions. So Mm -hmm. how you expect that a behavior will make you feel motivates behavior rather than perhaps necessarily the consequences uh, of what it is that you've done. Actually, it's the expectation of how you're going to feel that that really pushes people to, to act in the way they do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think, you know, there was a dominant paradigm in psychology for the past several decades. When we talk about emotion, we we, kind of believe that the way you feel right now dictates what you do. Um, And if I'm angry right now, then I'm going to be aggressive because that's what angry people do. Anger motivates people to be aggressive. But really, the evidence doesn't support that. In fact, what the evidence supports is a far more nuanced view of emotion where how you currently feel interacts with how you expect to feel to drive your behavior. And so instead of it being, I'm angry, so I act aggressively, it might be more that I'm angry, I don't like that state, I'm motivated to get out of that state, and so I do things that I think will make me less angry. And so anger does play a role, but it's more of an indirect role in motivating aggression um, as opposed to the direct role that we've always assumed that it plays.
0: Mm. I'm freewheeling a little bit here, but I guess one of the other distinctions that I wanted to, to bring up here before we get into the actual studies that you did is the, the temporal effect here. And, and the two different ways that um, acute social injuries or social slights may mm-hmm. produce a, a very acute um, feeling of uh, anger or negative emotion, but then, you know, a real acute pain. But then if this continues over a period of time, then often one of the things that people experience is this sense of numbness, this sense mm-hmm. of I don't belong, ostracism, and a feeling of perhaps of helplessness that's associated with that as well. And I think that what you found there is that, as you say, it's nuanced and it's complex and it's probably both.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very, again, it's just like revenge. Rejection has a very... Uh, Temp, a very strong temporal component to it as well. So in the moment, there are very strong reactions, and those are very different than how people respond to rejection in the long term. Um, they're completely alienated from each other, in fact, if you if you look at the data. Um, and so really, we have focused our research, and by we I mean my lab, but also the field, on immediate responses to rejection and immediate aspects of, of aggression and the long-term nature of, of rejection and its effect on, on violent behavior needs much, much more investigation. But, but there's been a growing amount of research on rejection and it's long-term effects and it really has shown that social pain is a real thing and that it occurs just like physical pain where there's the acute nature to it, where you, you, you feel an injury and you respond reflexively to that injury. But when that injury starts to become a chronic sensation, a very different repertoire of responses come out and it's not always as adaptive. So when you have uh, a social injury and you feel, you know, kind of a twinge of pain in response to it, that that might be an adaptive response. It might motivate you to heal the social injury by reconnecting with the people who rejected you or to prevent future injuries by, you know, kind of avoiding the individuals who rejected you. But in a chronic sense, uh, the, the pain tends to serve less of a function. Pain in the long term doesn't really do you much good. It's not a useful signal. It doesn't tell you where the injury is. Uh, you know the injury is there. It's not helping you. And so the, the effect that a chronic social injury has or, you know, like such as loneliness or social disconnection has on, on human behavior needs a lot more investigation because we know that it's a very different phenomenon.
0: Mm. I mean, it, it reminds me of some of the work that's done around, you know, the, on suppressing painful memories and actually mm-hmm. how that actually takes quite a lot of work uh, and can have an impact upon our, our health, but also the, the concept of um, loneliness and how that we're actually seeing this as much more of a public health hazard now, um, at, at, equivalent uh, in some cases to uh, smoking uh, in terms of the impact that it can have upon our health.
1: Yeah, the the evidence is really growing to make that case, and it makes a lot of sense when you look at the underlying neural architecture. So social pain uses the same biological systems as physical pain, and we have known for decades that chronic pain patients exhibit you know, chronic inflammation and uh, suppression of their immune systems. They have worse cardiovascular function and and higher mortality rates. So if we know that social pain uses these same systems in the body as physical pain, then it, it just you know, it's, it's kind of a necessary outcome that you're going to see the same uh, public health outcomes where people who are chronically isolated are going to show the exact same symptoms as people who have chronic back pain or uh, fibromyalgia.
0: Okay, so let's come back to the, the series of six studies that you, you did, David. Um, looking at this idea that revenge somehow may um, help to correct or repair a mood, um, that has been um, affected by some kind of social slight. And and you did a series of, of six studies here. Um, perhaps you can walk us through them, say, group them up in twos, because I think that that's how you've how, how you written them up as well. So maybe st- we can start with study one and two here.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, it was a, a series of studies that the overarching goal was to understand if the reason why rejected people are more aggressive is because they think that the revenge that they seek will fix their mood. So mm-hmm. we, there's decades of research that we just kind of talked about um, showing that rejection hurts in a very literal sense. And we know that when people are in an in aversive state, they want to fix that sensation, and they'll do a lot of different things to do so. And so we wanted to see overall if people you know, in a rejected state, the reason that they might be aggressive is because they think it'll exert this therapeutic mood-fixing um function on on the on the mood and so in the the first two studies what we really looked at was um we we rejected people experimentally and we gave them a chance to get revenge and we just kind of did a little questionnaire measure to assess uh the extent to which in their daily lives they think that aggression tends to have this therapeutic effect so there's these very well validated questionnaires um that can just assess the tendency that you view violence and aggression as a way to fix your mood. Just like how some people use meditation or they use exercise or they, they, you know, they go to the bar with their friends. Some people turn to violence. And so we Mm. kind of measured that naturally occurring, occurring variation. And we, we saw, we tested whether or not these types of people who tend to view aggression as synonymous with feeling better, if they would exhibit the, um, what we call the rejection aggression link and people who didn't have these views wouldn't. And that's, that's what we found is that people who tend to equate aggression with feeling better were the people who responded to rejection with aggression. Whereas people who didn't hold those views, uh, they, they didn't, they they did not seek revenge, uh, against the people who rejected them. And that's uh,
0: definitely, oh, sorry, excuse me. No, you're okay. Uh, Keep going. So there's a definite interaction there. If there's an expectation that this is going to have a positive impact, then that, that seems to drive their behavior. Um, you also you also measured their aggression using an interesting task, using the, <laughs> yeah. a voodoo doll task, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah, us more about yeah. that. You have to get very innovative and creative when it comes to measuring aggression because you have these two forces operating, you on, operating on you at all times where on one side you're trying to really evoke a true aggression experience you want people to really feel like they're hurting someone you you really need to have that component to say that you have a valid aggression measure but on the other side you have the ethical considerations. so you can't actually hurt someone and you can't make it too real to the point where the participant feels like they've actually truly you know Cause lasting damage to someone, so you're, you're kind of left in this this very delicate space that requires you to be very creative. And so, to do that, uh, greater minds than my own have, have developed a lot of fantastic techniques to measure aggressive behavior. And uh, in the context of these first two studies, we use one, which is a uh, it's this competitive computer task where you're you're competing against this other person and you're trying to basically beat them. And as punishment uh, for if they happen to lose, you can blast them with this this horrible noise. Uh, so you can crank up the dial on on, the, you can turn all the way up to eleven and really just just blast these people with this this horrendous noise. But it, that was study one. In study two, we gave people um, over the internet, we gave them a picture of a voodoo doll. So this is a you know just a typical plush fabric doll. And we said this represents the person who either just rejected or accepted you. and, and here's some pins, sharp pointy pins, and you can put as many of them uh, in the doll as you like. And you can pick from zero to fifty one. And we, we, we use this as a pretty well-validated uh, measure of aggressive behavior. <laughs> um, and it seems a little silly. It absolutely does. But, you know, there's, there's been scientific validation techniques that have shown that. So if I tell you that the, the doll is your romantic partner and you can put as many pins in it as you want, the number of pins you put in that doll is, is correlated with your past history of, of engaging in um, intimate partner violence. So it's a little silly on the face of it, but it does tap into a very real phenomenon.
0: Yeah, and I thought it was very um, interesting because I could see how it would um, appear silly. But as you say, it's been well validated and does seem correlated, highly correlated with other indicators of... of of violence. Uh, um, so yeah, it was really interesting to me. Um, the other interesting thing, I guess, in, in study two, was you were looking specifically at sadistic impulses. So I was wondering mm. if you could talk a little bit here about what, what you mean by sadism in this context and how you think, um, what were you trying to test and what did you find in this study?
1: Yeah, sadism is an ancient phenomenon. It goes back a long, long way. And it it used to mean a lot of different things, but in in its current scientific context, it means enjoyment of seeing someone else be hurt. And so uh, when we measure it, uh, questionnaire items like I would enjoy hurting someone or I would find it exciting to inflict pain on someone. Those those are items that we use to measure this measure this phenomenon. Um, And it's a personality trait, just like being extroverted or being agreeable. Uh, People tend to exhibit dispositional tendencies towards finding the pain of others pleasurable. Um, sure. It, it, yeah.
0: And so, how are you? How are you testing that in this uh, in this series of studies, in particular, study two?
1: Right. So, so it, the idea was, you know, if if people who report that they think aggression makes them feel better, if those are the people who are responding to rejection with aggression, then that really should be explained by their tendency to truly find it enjoyable. Um, so, this is what we call a test of mediation, where we're looking at a mechanism. And what we found was is is that uh, the, these people who said that aggression typically helps their mood and it makes them feel better, they were more aggressive, but they were more aggressive because they expected that aggression would make them feel better. And that's what sadism is is that they they perceive aggression as being this pleasant, enjoyable, rewarding, and reinforcing activity. and uh, this supports this overall notion that, People who are rejected seek aggression because of its rewarding qualities. They see it as, you know, it's, it's like a big ice cream sundae. It's, it's like viewing porn. It's, it's this reinforcing, rewarding activity they can do that will bring them out of their painful mood.
0: Right, right. So it does seem that there's a, a link there as a possible explanatory mechanism. And you sought to um, replicate that and test that a bit further in studies three and four, right?
1: Yeah. So in the first two studies, those we, we found correlational evidence for, for our overarching hypothesis, but uh, we need experimental evidence to really show cause and effect. And so we turned to a tried and true method of experimentally manipulating this phenomenon uh, in which we gave people a little vitamin C pill, but we didn't tell them it was a vitamin C pill. We told them instead that it was uh you know, a brand new medication, a cognitive enhancing medication, kind of like a uh, Ritalin or Adderall, something like that. And that, you know, it has some side effects and we were testing its effects and it's safe and all that. But, you know, one of its side effects is that it freezes your mood. And so however you felt coming in here is how you're going to feel for the next hour or so. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's, there's nothing you can do to make yourself feel better or feel worse. You're just kind of stuck. And we gave it to them, and we timed it per- precisely so that some of them were rejected and then felt stuck being rejected, and others were accepted and included and felt that way. And what we found is that um, rejected people who had been given this, this you know, this, this testing drug, this this drug that was supposedly freezing their mood um, as a side effect, they did not exhibit the typical um, aggressive response. So typically when you reject someone, you see this increase in revenge seeking, but you really didn't see this when you told people they had taken a pill that had frozen their mood for the next hour.
0: Right. So, well, and what sense did you make of this?
1: Well, the idea here is that if, if the reason that people are behaving aggressively after they're rejected is because they, they do it to feel better then these these data really support that that overarching notion that that you know people are seeing aggression as a way to improve their mood and when they think that's impossible when they think there's no way to feel any better because we've frozen their mood with this drug that they don't seek it out
0: So this is a way of establishing control where they feel like they have the ability to do that, right? And when that control is taken away from them, perhaps externally, there's a constraint that's been put here, then actually their expectation is that I can't do anything about this. So then they don't behave in that way.
1: Exactly. You perfectly summarized it.
0: Okay. So and then study six was a variation of this?
1: Sorry, sorry, sorry,
0: study four, sorry. Oh, no, five and six. (laughs) That's right, five and six, sorry, yeah.
1: There's lots of studies, yeah, because if you're really (laughs) going to make a controversial claim like we did, you need to bring the evidence, you need to bring the data. And so we, we, we compiled six studies, and so studies five and six wanted to build off of the first four studies, in which, you know, so studies one through four are pretty concretely showed that aggressive responses to rejection seem to be contingent on the expectation that it's going to make you feel better, that it has this therapeutic quality, that revenge is sweet and that it will make you feel better. Well, having established that, that that's the reason why rejected people behave aggressively in part, uh, we wanted to build on that and we wanted to see, is it true? Is that expectation uh, reinforced in real life, does does this appear in the way that people actually respond to aggression? So if I think that revenge will make me feel better, is that actually the case? And what we found is that in the short term, that's absolutely true. And so we did two very well-powered studies. So we used you know hundreds of participants, and we found that you know rejected people compared to accepted people tend to feel worse. But if you give them a chance to get revenge, they look just like the people um, who weren't rejected afterwards. So that that it seems that there is some sort of therapeutic quality where they no longer show this disparity in negative emotions and positive emotions. They, They tend to feel just like the people who were never rejected in the first place.
0: Wow. Okay, so that has some powerful implications, I think, David. What What do you think? Why should we care about this? What, what What's the point of the the researcher and the claims that you're making here? That actually, revenge, if the conditions are right, um, actually does seem to repair the mood uh, of those people who are expressing this kind of behavior.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a lot to say about what these results mean. But before I even can mention any of that, I have to state that. This feeling is extremely short-lived and that it is immediately replaced with a a quick reduction, a quick decline in positive emotions and and an even faster resurgence in negative emotions. And so that this is not a lasting effect. This is not a true therapeutic effect that revenge in the moment does feel good. And it lasts a few minutes afterwards, but it quickly fades and it leads you worse off than you began. Hmm. So I think that's a really important starting point for this conversation. Mm. And moving on to the second part, I, I really think the implication for this is it shows that aggression in many ways models an addictive behavior. Uh, so just like uh, cocaine abuse and alcohol abuse, this is an immediately reinforcing behavior that where there is a high, there is a buzz, there is a, there is a feeling of a positive effect which quickly fades and in fact leaves you feeling worse than you began. This is the hangover uh, that that kicks in pretty quickly. And we know in addictive behaviors that this initial reinforcement followed by you know this, this increase in, in, in a negative sensation tends to reinforce the behavior. And so it kind of suggests that aggression and revenge specifically might mirror other addictive phenomena.
0: So they'll go out in search of the next opportunity to exert revenge or retaliatory aggression in order to get the mini high of feeling good, uh, and to avoid the negative uh, impacts of when that feeling good wears away.
1: Yeah. The withdrawal. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's where we're looking now. And so our, our investigation has shifted now to really seeing the, if, if aggression has these true addictive features, uh, Some preliminary self-report evidence suggests that it does, that people do feel a buzz and that it doesn't last long. And when it's gone, they feel worse and they then seek it out again because it makes them feel better and they'll do things that very negatively impact their life. So these are people who will abuse their spouse and will get into bar fights because they want that high. They want that euphoric feeling of hurting the other person, uh, even though they know that it's not a lasting feeling.
0: Mm. There's a couple of things that um, came up as I was reading the paper and during this conversation. One of them is kind of like a micro-psychological phenomenon, I guess, and that's the idea of time distortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder how that, what we see objectively as a short-lived Um, high as after this retaliatory aggression this retaliatory revenge behavior how that is experienced by the people who are expressing it Uh, and i wonder you know for those people who are expressing this behavior how is time experienced what do we what do we know about um about that
1: that is that's a very fascinating question i don't have any data on that uh, a recent paper, a very recent paper came out in the journal Psychological Science showing that positive feelings really do lead to reduced time perception so that you, you really do take a short window of time and you drag it out and you really do feel like the, that moment is longer. Um, so based on that and based on the evidence showing that revenge is really this, this positively experienced phenomenon, I imagine that our acts of vengeance are really diluted in time. We think that they last longer than they really do.
0: Yeah. And I guess I I was just worried. I I guess I was not worried, concerned thinking about um, um, the sorts of altered states of consciousness that we have and how we often feel like time is flying when we're absorbed, when we have that sense of flow. I wonder if there is almost like a negative sense of flow that's created by the positive affect that's correcting the negative feelings that they were having such that time is experienced in quite a different way when they're engaging in these behaviors. And then that might then explain why, um, it feels so rewarding.
1: And that's, that's a very interesting. And I, I haven't thought about that, but as you were saying that all I could do is picture the various boxing movies and like violent movies in which there are scenes in which time is slowed down. So I mean, the matrix is the quintessential, uh, you know, slowing down of time, bullet speed style movie, which then became kind of the, the new standard. And it, it only occurs during violence, you know? So these people are getting shot at, and they're shooting at other people, and they're, they're in a boxing match, and they can see the fist slowly flying by their face as they kind of collide their fist with the other person's jaw. Yeah, I mean, I think just from an anecdotal, phenomenological, and cultural sense, I, I think that we really do associate aggression with this slowed down sense of time where it's really enjoyable and we kind of see our fist crunching into the person's, the person's face. You know, I I really do believe that this temporal distortion plays a big role in our vengeful tendencies.
0: Interesting. Uh, I guess the other thing that I was thinking about is you've talked quite um, a lot here and, and the paradigm that you're using here, I guess, is on um, overt aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I was thinking about the sort of passive retaliatory aggression, uh, and I guess the thing that was coming into my mind was this idea of ghosting. This mm-hmm. idea that you know, if you see, if you feel this social slight, but particularly in social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, then uh, one way in which you may deal with that is by ghosting and actually disappearing or, or refusing to respond. And there, I would hypothesise that they are deriving a sense of pleasure from not responding and then retaliating in this much more of a passive rather than active way. Um, is, is there much around how re- the different ways that revenge can be um, expressed in, in this passive way?
1: That's a very interesting question. It, it makes me think about William James, uh, you know, a very early figure in philosophy and and in psychology and I remember he said very very memorably that the, one of the worst forms of human torture is to be ignored, hmm. and that even being uh insulted or or someone you know hurting you physically it, it pales in comparison to the feeling that it is when, when no one even acknowledges your presence. In fact, that's some of the worst torture. He argued the worst torture you could inflict on someone is to completely ignore their presence. And I think that if people are seeking retribution and they're seeking to inflict harm, one of the worst things you can do then and is to ignore someone and to ghost them or, or whatever form that might take. Because that really is – I mean if you think about it, it is a, is a profoundly – a uh, painful phenomenon. So this is why solitary confinement among inmates is often viewed as far worse than uh, forms of corporal punishment or, or physical punishment. Uh, to truly be socially isolated, given the long-standing evolved connectedness that we need to have with our neighbors, it, total isolation and, and, and ghosting on people is is truly a profoundly damaging uh, form of retribution. And so I, I, we've kind of entered into a new, a new age. So there's, there's new research showing that cyberbullying is this new form of, of aggression that we, we don't know anything about. And as the internet becomes a bigger part of people's lives, ghosting and ignoring people and, and, and disregarding their, their existence, I think is going to become more common. And I think the harm from that could be incalculable.
0: Hmm. where next for you David what, what's interesting you where is this research taking you? What, are you what are you working on at the moment
1: Oh, everywhere and anywhere um, I, I have the delightful pleasure of working with some great brilliant young minds uh, in the form of my graduate students and so there's a few domains in which they're going uh, one is really looking at this, these addictive features of aggression uh, it, is aggression really an addictive behavior and we're really trying to scientifically establish that. or not, depending on, on what it has. Preliminary evidence shows that it is. Um, and another way is looking at something we touched on earlier in our conversation, which is the temporal nature of revenge and looking at it over time. So many times when people are faced with the option of getting revenge or they've been slighted or rejected, they can get immediate revenge now, or they might be able to delay it and get a greater amount of revenge at a later time. And so uh, we are looking at this, this judgment, this decision-making process, where do when do people favor getting immediate revenge right now, even if it's less you know, satisfactory, or do they wait by their time and achieve a, a far greater form of revenge? So th- those are kind of our two big avenues right now, and I'm really excited about those.
0: Yeah, I, I guess um, I'm uh, reminded about how um, at the beginning of our conversation, I was talking about this idea of revenge as a, a dish best served cold right. and, and differentiating between this kind of like hot revenge in the moment um, right. or do you bide your time for a greater greater payoff later on um, if that's what you're looking for. Um, so, yeah, that that would be a very interesting um and fruitful, uh, I hope, uh, avenue of research for you. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Who Cares, What's the Point? I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at WCWTP and myself Saab Johal your host and producer at Saab S-A-R-B on Twitter you can also find us who cares what's the point on Facebook and who cares what's the point dot com you can email us from there too contact at who cares what's the point dot com if you enjoyed the show the best thing you can do is to review and rate us on iTunes uh, you can find us there or any of your other favourite podcast applications uh, subscribe to us just spread the word it'd be really good to uh connect with you and talk about any other episodes you might like to see thanks so much for listening and don't forget who cares what's the point